Hello and welcome to the very latest edition of The Atmosphere is Electric. As always, you're joined by myself, Rich, and on the other end of the line is Fran. Fran, how are you this week, buddy? Yeah, I'm in good form, thank you. How are you? Very good. L- little man behaving himself. Obviously, last week we broke the news of our new listener. Is he, is he performing for you? Is he behaving? He is. He's, he's as good as gold. He's sleeping. He Well, he obviously, he doesn't talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's quiet. Yeah, he's as good as gold, mate. Thank you. By the way, if he's talking this early... Make some money off the back of that genius. That's, that's, <laughs> that's two weeks old and he's talking already. Uh, that would be very impressive. Uh, obviously, we've come to uh, an impasse in terms of all of the, the football, you know, in terms of Premier League has finished. But there was uh, what felt like a little bit like after the Lord Mayor show, some international football, uh, albeit actually very important international football across the board. There's obviously the, the combination of the Nations League. There's obviously qualifiers for Euros going on. And England obviously had... Uh, even on paper, looked like two relatively easy games. But they tried a couple of bits and pieces that actually were quite interesting, at least certainly kept our interest in the game. And obviously, starting on what was last Friday against Malta, they moved Trent into a new position. How did you think that worked for England? Is that something you can see England and Liverpool doing in the future? I thought it, it actually worked really well. I think Trent is absolutely suited to that position. What I do feel, though, with the two games with him playing in there, against those opposition against Malta and North Macedonia, you're not going to really see if it works. But for those two games in isolation, so let's take those two games, um, I thought it worked really well. He's getting on the ball. Um, I thought he actually tracked back like a midfielder, which is which is odd considering his defence is, is his weakness at right-back, isn't it? But yeah, I thought he did everything right in that position. And for me, it's the way going forward because you've got one of the best passers of the ball um, in the Premier League, probably in the world, in Trent, crosses as well. Getting him in those positions higher up the pitch is only going to benefit England. And it seems, don't you think actually that's that's part of what we've sort of thrown at Gareth Southgate in the past is that it didn't matter who we played. You know, that was our system, that was our shape and those were the people that played it. You know, I go back to the World Cup playing Croatia in the semi-final. Croatia had four days, whatever it was, three or four days to plan against England, knowing exactly how we were going to play, exactly who was going to play there and actually then came up with a plan to combat that. Whereas now actually he's going... Oh, let's try some different stuff, different people. So actually, if you're now an opposing manager, England are much harder now to predict who's going to be player in what shape and how. Yeah, I think kudos to him for doing it. Obviously, those, these are the games to try those sorts of things, aren't they? So I, I definitely think it's the right move. Definitely um, you know, pick him, get him some experience in those positions in international football, especially. Um, I just think the real acid test is going to be when we play Italy in that group. And if he's still in that position and performs well, I think that's really good signs going forwards. Yeah, I guess if you're a midfield player, you might get slightly narked that you've been bumped for Trent. But you know, the thing that impressed me was was it was the ball before the ball, wasn't it, against the Malta game, the chip over the back for Saka to run onto to cross that that then led to the own goal. Uh, you know, quite often you forget about the the, the pre-assist if you like, and I thought that was an exquisite ball just with the perfect bit of backspin for Saka to run onto. And if he can start finding those wide men in Rashford and Saka regularly, that could become a very dangerous tool for us, couldn't it, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Especially like you just mentioned the pass. There's, there's not many people in, in the England squad that can play that pass. So you look at our midfield, you've got Henderson, Rice, Bellingham. They're more of a shorter passes, aren't they, of the ball? They normally keep the ball ticking over, keep possession. They're not really penetrating through the lines. And Trent is definitely one one player who can do that. And he normally does it from deeper. So like I say, to get him higher up the pitch, he's definitely somebody who can do that. So just add another string to the bow in midfield, I think is really good. Yeah, and of course, he's, he's, he's not too shabby on set pieces as well. So again, to have another option standing over the ball. I know that sort of Trippier played the first game and, and, and obviously Kyle Walker, the second game when the Man City guys were, were reintroduced back into the team. But to have somebody else that can stand over the ball and take a free kick 
uh, can't be a bad thing. And we mentioned there, obviously, Trent's pass to Saka for the assist in the first game. Obviously, we can't move on without talking about the explosive performance against what was supposed to be the tougher opposition on Monday night against North Macedonia. Saka really stole the show and he's turning to be quite a player for England, isn't he? Yeah, not not just England, Arsenal as well. Just in general, I think he's he's well. I do actually do think he's world class. It that gets banded around there quite often, doesn't it? World class, um, and we probably put it on players who are just below that bracket. But I do think he is. Um, he has the X factor about him. You know, he's calm, he's composed, he scores goals, he assists, he, he uh, carries the ball up the pitch really easily, goes by players. I just think he is one of our world class players. And for me, with the exception of Harry Kane, he's the first name on the team sheet. I read it again. Someone's going to correct me, but I'm sure he's played 28 games for England. He's won 10 man of the matches already. You know, it's a phenomenal level of consistency at international football. And like you say, he's done it all season for Arsenal, so it shouldn't be a surprise. But actually, I think he's already the second highest goal scorer for England whilst playing for Arsenal. He's 21. I was about to say his age as well is is the exciting thing, isn't it? He's only going to get better, or you'd like to think he is. He's only going to get better. Um, so yeah, I build the team around him. If you're an Arsenal fan, build the team around him. If you're an England um, supporter, build the team around him. So we've only got a few years of Harry Kane, haven't we? But Saka, like you said, is 21. There's another 10 years minimum there. Um, if we can get him into those positions in World Cups and Euros, we should have some success. And he's almost doing what Raheem Sterling sort of flattered to do for England, isn't he? Like I don't, I don't remember Saka sort of missing as many chances as Sterling does. I see him creating more goals than Sterling did. So actually, he's almost like a like the perfect upgrade on Sterling, who who seems to have fallen, you know, completely off the England well, and Chelsea radar. To be fair, uh, but like you say, potentially someone that can go and really stamp their authority in that position. And the exciting thing for me is that now when we take a Saka and a Rashford off, we're bringing players on that don't drop the standard. You know, actually, they might be slightly different types of players. But the quality that's coming off the bench for England is as good as what was on at the start with, isn't it? Yeah, so we were bringing Jack Grealish on, weren't we? And whether the debate is whether Jack Grealish should start or not. But when you've got a, either Saka, Grealish, uh, Rashford, I mean, there's others as well, isn't there? Sancho's, there's, there's a lot of other players that we can bring on. We've got a lot of firepower. So England, for me, will qualify through this group very comfortably. And then when we do get to the Euros and the next World Cup, we've got to start looking to try and win them, which I know we've been going close, but we are. And you know, whisper it again, we're getting a bit of a golden generation, aren't we, with some of the players we've got? And I think we've got to start looking to go very, very deep into these tournaments and looking to win one. What I liked was, you know, with the Rashford Saka, it, it helped play round and over the, the low block, which meant that the game got stretched. Whereas sometimes, actually, if you play with a Foden and a Greenwich in there who are playing lots of passes, lots of short passes, actually, you can bring the game on top of you and close down those passing lines to make it harder. So, actually, to have that out ball from Trent and others all the time, obviously trying to break lines with that pace actually means that the low block becomes slightly less uh, difficult to negate when you've got that option sort of out wide. Yeah, we have had sort of one way of playing, haven't we, for a few years, whereas now we almost do have two uh, front threes that all offer different qualities, which, you know, if you've got a low block or a team that's playing high up the pitch, we've got different people to utilise for different strengths and weaknesses, haven't we? So, uh, like I said, we've got a lot of options up there now and for me, we've got to start looking to win a tournament. Absolutely, yeah, no problem at all. No, no argument for me at all. And, and the other one, just to, before we move on from England, it's a really sort of bizarre situation where Harry Maguire seems to get picked every game for England. I think he's played eleven games on the trot. Doesn't get a look in at Manchester United in reality. What's he got to do? Like, I mean, we're all still sort of ridiculed him, laughing, sort of making a bit of a, a joke. You know, should he be starting for England if he's not starting for Man United for a starting point? And what does he need to do this summer to really start to kind of make himself a, a, an absolute regular moving forward? Um. So, uh, I find myself torn on it because I do think he should start for England because I do feel that, you know, we haven't really got a 
depth of um, English centre-halves, have we really? And I do probably, when I look at what's available, he is probably still our best centre-half, with the exception of John Stones. Um, so I do think he is in, in the top two, so should be starting. However, I also have the opinion that if you're not playing for your club, you shouldn't be picked for England. Um, so I do think, you know, if you're trying to get into the, the England squad as a centre-half and you're looking at Maguire being picked every week and he's not starting, I do think it's unfair. You know, you know, you've got no form for your club. You've got no fitness for your club and all of a sudden he's starting for England. So I think it's wrong. So it's, it's sort of a bit of a contradiction there. So for me, I think he has to move. Um, you know, the rumours are going around in the media that he's opting to stay and Ten Hag wants to move him on. I think he should move on and start getting regular football because it'll only benefit him and also England. If he's a lot fitter when he's coming to a tournament than he has been, surely he's going to be performing better. And yeah, I mean, I just wrote down while you were talking. I mean, there there is a a batch of young centre backs coming through that you know maybe aren't quite ready. You have got Tamori at AC Milan, who the AC Milan fans will, will tell you is doing an amazing job. Obviously, you got Gehi at Crystal Palace, who's who's one to watch out for. Kilman at, at Wolves, and, and obviously there's Colville at Chelsea, Brighton, depending on what day of the week it is at the moment. So, so we have got some youngsters coming through that could do that role. But what, what does what, where, do, where do you think Harry Maguire? So you know, if he does is to leave, mate, what sort of club should Harry Maguire be looking to go to to help sort of cement himself? Because actually, by this time next year, some of them could really be pushing him half for his position. So he could end up spending a year on the bench at Manchester United and not making the championship. So what sort of team do you think should be looking at Maguire? Where should he go? So I think ever since his move from Leicester to Man United, he's sort of proven that he's he's probably not at that elite level of what they were looking for. I think the price tag's probably weighed heavy on him as well. So I don't feel that, you know, he should be moving to an elite in one of, one of the top six, possibly. He could be looking at Spurs, where there's there's probably centre-half positions um, available. But probably the next bracket down, so I mean, I'd be looking at probably a, a Brighton, a, an Aston Villa, um, teams like that, really. But I think it's just as long as it's sort of mid-table to top-half Premier League and he's playing every week and he's the main centre-half, his form will come back immediately for me. So I just feel it's one of those teams around in and around sort of 6th to 10th. Yeah, fair. For me, again, I don't mind if you're playing with an inverted forward, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, Riyad Mahrez doesn't really well, plays out on the right, nicks back onto his left foot and creates all kinds of crazy sort of shooting opportunities, etc. As as one example. I'm not mad keen on it as a centre-back. I think, I think if you're right-footed, you should be the right centre-back where possible, and if you're left-footed, you should be the left centre-back. I think it opens up passing lanes and opportunities at all levels of football. You know, left-footed centre-backs are becoming a real commodity that, you know, everybody's looking for in terms of being able to move the ball quick. And I just think, actually, he'd probably do well with his... Because, again, we're, we're criticising him for his passing quite a lot. I think it'd be better if he actually came across the other side and played as the right centre-back. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I said, when I played football, I was a centre-half, and I always used to be shifted out to the left because I was a bit more comfortable there. But that didn't mean I was comfortable playing there. And I can completely get that. When you are playing right and you can shift the ball onto your right foot, pass it quicker, dribble, whatever you need to do, just make sure you're a far better player. And I'm to think about what you're doing. It's more instinct. Yeah, I think he's, he, like I say, he needs a couple of decisions. What type of players do you want to be? Where does he want to play in terms of on the pitch? But also, like you say, go into a team. You know, I, I think I would throw in, again, obviously, you know, there's a debate for maybe for later, but who are the top six, you know, because actually I think next season is going to be a really, really interesting top six, maybe more so than ever. But actually maybe even a Newcastle should be looking at Harry Maguire. Uh, I think Newcastle is a great shout. You know, whether, whether because again, Shah, Cher, sorry, Shah, who's Shah? Cher's brother. Cher sort of tends to play on that right-hand side and actually Botman seems, and I think, I can see Botman, Maguire, Trippier. I think that could be a good down that side. I can see that being, you know, with Pope behind, that feels nice and strong. That feels like an option there for me for, for Newcastle. 
Uh, but I'm not suggesting that Newcastle aren't in the top six, but just saying that that, that, that might be somewhere for him to go. Uh, we will come on to more about transfers a bit later because there's obviously lots of movement happening all across the board. As we speak, stuff's coming through. Even today, there's been some more stuff that's happened. So uh, we'll keep you up with that. Uh, we were both uh, really taken aback with some news stories this week. Again, they, they say that nothing should shock you in football anymore, but it seems to keep doing that. And there were some really unusual management from for me anyway, managerial sackings this week. Let's start with Bournemouth. Bournemouth sacking Gary O'Neill, who we were both tipping as, you know, if Arsenal didn't win the league, because Pep Guardiola, sorry, Mikel Arteta was then shooing to win manager of the year. We were talking about Gary O'Neill not that long ago being in, in the running for manager of the season, and yet he's now been relinquished of his responsibility. That feels like an absolute crazy decision to me. I think it's super harsh, like you said. and I was of the same opinion as you, that he's probably manager of the season with what he's done there. Um, so when the news came through, I, I thought, wow, that's that's really harsh. Um, obviously, like you, you normally say, we, we don't know what's happened behind closed doors. But the only thing that I can see there is do do Bournemouth want to try and kick on and do they feel that by getting in, an upgrade, um, or what they see as an upgrade, um, that they can possibly try and move away from the relegation zone and you know become a mid-table consolidated Premier League team? That's got to be the thinking. But I mean, on the, on the face of it, it looks a really harsh sacking. So, so that's a, that's that's a, that's a good point, but I think actually, for me, that almost is negated by the appointment they've made. If and, you know, we, we message each other quickly and work with Potter. You know, Graham Potter is that is that who's going there? You know, and, and again, I appreciate he didn't do well at Chelsea, but he's Premier League proven he's available. You know, would definitely be fit the Bournemouth profile for me. Uh, and they've gone out and for me, really replaced him with somebody that's that's probably a bigger risk than Gary O'Neill was in the first place. I think it's a risk. I mean, if you uh, you hear a lot of journalists and stuff you hear in the media is is that he is very highly rated, Iriola. However, for me, completely unproven, has only managed at one club, I believe, which is Athletic Bilbao. Um, and we had a chat before. It's Basque region, isn't it? They only sign Basque Basque players. Is that how you pronounce it, Basque? Yeah. Um, so you know, he's very unproven. He's not really had the full exposure of going into a transfer market or or working in this or playing in this country even. So for me, I think it is a very, you know, it's a proper stab in the dark. This it could it could turn out to be an amazing appointment, but I think it's a huge risk, and I think we probably might have been better off sticking with Gary O'Neill after the job that he's done. He knows that squad really well, and you know, giving him a transfer budget for next season, why couldn't he have kicked on? He actually was a manager of Raya Vallecano. He played at Bilbao because he is from the Basque region, and and I think people are sort of excited about him because he did it on a, you know, he kept them in in La Liga on a very tight budget but again part of the rationale that I'd been told about reading for Gary O'Neill was that he wasn't the profile that was going to attract players to Bournemouth you know they, they, they felt that they needed somebody that would, would have a better sort of gravitas in, in the industry to, to, to attract players now again for me Bielsa is is Ariola's kind of uh, teacher you know he plays a very similar style high press high energy but if Bielsa can't make it work in the Premier League with Leeds who's the, the creator and the founder of it I'm not really sure that a student of his, with arguably a team that's never played it before, is going to have a better chance of doing it than Leeds did. No, um, the only thing you can probably say about it is 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 is, is he going to shortly drift away from the Bielsa model? As in, he can stick to that model, but then make fine tweaks, which I think is one of the biggest criticisms of Bielsa was that he was very rigid with his with his structure and his tactics, wasn't he? When it was going wrong, he had one way of playing. So has um, you know his disciples have they learnt from him and then also tried to tweak it so it's even better possibly yeah for me it's a huge risk yeah uh, it just smacks of you know completely left field I think that personally 
I think Gary O'Neill did enough to deserve at least a crack at it next season. I mean, Vlami, you know, they were pretty ruthless with getting rid of Scott Parker. It turns out to be absolutely correct, but, you know, they, they got rid of Scott Parker very, very early. And I think the job that Gary O'Neill did to keep Bournemouth up, and again, even as late as January, February, in fact, Bournemouth, even on the last day of the season when they stayed up, posted a social media point, didn't they, of all of the people, all of the experts, you know, predicting Bournemouth to go down from as late as February. Yeah, but I mean, uh, we always we go on some. We've done some predictions, haven't we, and got them horribly wrong. I think at that point in time, there was a period of time where Bournemouth looked the absolute cert to go down, yeah. which just like you said, just shows you how good a job he did. So even though it is harsh, I don't think he's going to be struggling for work. There's going to be quite a lot of clubs that will look at the job that he's done, and I think he'll be in demand. Well, interestingly, he, he's on the radar for, for the next club that we're going to come across, and, and maybe not particularly high, maybe based on where they are. But obviously, Sheffield Wednesday sacking. Darren Moore feels maybe even more harsh. I mean, obviously, maybe I'm emotionally, you know, we spoke about it in detail, 4-0 down in the first leg of the semi-final against Peterborough, come back and get through, go up. Uh, This one just doesn't make any sense. And and even the fact they've come out of mutual consent doesn't make any sense. Like, this this one just feels like you had the right man doing an amazing... Let's not forget, they they got 96 points during the season, so it's not like they scraped into the championship. They absolutely deserved it. It should have gone up automatically. And you've let, wait, this, why not do this the day after? This? Why not? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Can, can you make any sense of it? I can't. Like you said, the, the personnel, the timings of it, it just all seems really odd. Like I said, with, with the Bournemouth O'Neill sacking, the fact that they went and got out and, and managed, I think it was in a, within the next day, wasn't it? At least you can see that they've got a plan there. People may not dis, uh, agree with it, but there's a plan. It doesn't seem to be one here with Chef Wednesday. They seem to be that he's just been, he's been let go with, by mutual consent. And then... What next? Like it's, it's just really odd. Um, it smacks of that there's hardly any planning there. And from going from Chef Wednesday looking to have a really positive season, now you're looking at them going, could they be relegated now? No manager in place. The club seem a bit in disarray now. No leader. Could They could be in trouble now. Well, uh, when you look at the list, again, I, I, I tell you regularly not to look at the odds on, on the next manager because it's pointless. But, so I, I fall into my own trap here, so apologies. But obviously, uh, it's difficult to keep across. So, you, know, you look at the, the, the top three uh, that are being linked to the Sheffield Wednesday job in terms of odds is Carlos Carvajal, who, let's be honest, hasn't exactly torn English football up in the past, Steven Gerrard, and Vitor Campelos from Carves. Like these names aren't people that, that you know. Darren Moore got the club. He understood the club. He understood the community, the fan base. You know, a huge club that were playing in the league well beneath them. I don't know that any of those three are going to be a better solution to the problem, Darren Moore. No, and Chef Wednesday have, have gone down that route before, haven't they? Of foreign managers, and none of them seem to have worked. They've they've struggled for a long while, and Darren Moore's the one who's come in and turned them round. And you know, when you saw his team talk after the the, the whooping they took in the the first playoff. And then after that game, when they turned it around in the second playoff game, again, his team talk, he seems to be a really calm, calm person, you know, very knowledgeable about the game. Seems a really nice fellow as well. So now to lose him and potentially all those, with the exception of Gerard, who looks like he's off to the Saudi league, um, all of them are foreign. I don't like to, I don't think they'll get the club like Darren Moore did. So for me, I think they're in trouble. Yeah, I'm just going down the list. There's some absolutely weird and wacky names on here. Let's 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 be sure. I mean, there's there's absolutely some bonkers stuff going on. The only thing I haven't seen yet is Barry Bannon, uh, <laughs> who obviously did a great job of, of of literally dragging them through. John Terry's in at thirty three to one. Scott Parker's there again, of course, he's at thirty three to one. So you know, there's some names out there. Raf Hassel, who's or Raf Hasselhoff, who's an interesting one at forties. Uh, he's an interesting one. I think might be be someone that could do something. But again, for me, sometimes. Uh, I, th- I think there's almost like this habit now of, of, of people just sack a manager every sort of 18 months or release a manager every 18 months. 
just to hear a different voice. I think, you know, a club like Chef Wednesday should have been going really to get some stability in. Just, you know, set yourself up in the championship. Because again, there's, like you say, there's no guarantee they're going to stay there. Get there for a couple of years and then set yourself up with a nice bedrock to then go and try and kick on to get into the playoffs and try and get into the Premier League. And I think they've made that job much, much harder personally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, um, you know, having a bit different to O'Neill, when, you, when you've just been promoted and you've got that, um, you've got that bounds, haven't you, that momentum, you, you try and utilise that as much as you can. So just by removing the person who's in charge, I think they're in trouble now. They've removed that bounds and that momentum. So for me, I think they're in trouble. Yeah, and as we know, you know, it's it's twelve thirty, and and who knows what's going to happen today? There's always a, a, a breaking news story about somebody that you didn't see coming. So so who knows who the next manager to go is? But it just seems like uh, they call it crazy season because of transfers. It's definitely a crazy season across the board, and uh, lots of really strange decisions taking place. So you mentioned there about Stephen Gerrard potentially going out to Saudi, and that's that's definitely something that that I've heard as well. You know, kind of doing a bit of research on it, and something that we have to touch on is the Saudi Pro League. We spoke about it last week, the week before, sort of saying it's a bit of a bit of a novelty, a bit of fun. Uh but actually they're starting to uh they're starting to make some real noise, aren't they? They are. Uh, and it's not just on the player front, like I said it's on the manager front as well, aren't they? I mean they've they've already got what, four signings over the line. They've got um N'Golo Kante, they've obviously got Benzema, Ronaldo was there before. There's another one who's just gone as well. So they are every day there's new people being linked. I think Son was um Hombin Son was linked yesterday, wasn't he? Um and then you've got all of the Chelsea players. So that league is going to turn into a serious league sooner or later, whether we like it or not. There's a lot of players going over there. Ruben Neves is obviously in his prime going over there from Wolves. So it's not just they're not just taking the ageing stars now as well. They are looking at some players in the prime. So I'm going to give you what I liken it to in a flippant way to start with, because I think obviously there's two ways to look at every story. So what this feels like to me is, if ever you played, did you play football manager, championship manager when you were younger? Oh, Yes. Do you remember when they used to have the you could add a manager tab? Yeah. And you, what you then do is you go, right, I've got some old Deadwood. I don't, you then go and take over the team and you had the biggest transfer kitty and you then go and buy your oldest centre-back that doesn't play for 100 million and you'd buy their best player for 1 million and you'd let it happen and you'd cheat your way through the season because you've, you've just got, you know, for me it was always Edgar Davids. I'd go and sign Edgar Davids for nothing and I'd sell them, you know, whoever it was for, 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 for 50 million and it feels to me like you know, in, in the in the fun sense that that's what's happening, but in the actual, if you break it down, there is a there is a bit of an undertone to what's going on here. I mean, Chelsea have sold Kulabali, Mendy, Ziyech all going. Looks like Hudson Adoy at twenty two. By the way, he's only twenty two. I couldn't believe that. Uh, he might be going out as well. And and obviously the news broke that actually the Saudis own a, a share of the holding group of Chelsea. And so this could just be a really inflated way for Chelsea to get through their really difficult FFP situation that's coming up. And is that? Is that something that sits comfortable with you, or do you think that's just downright, you know, adding a manager and cheating? No, it, it doesn't sit comfortable with me. You see, you've got a lot of teams in the in the Premier League who play by the rules. Um, you know, there's a lot of them who have really struggled. I'm thinking like Everton over the past few seasons have struggled with FFP and haven't splashed the cash. Um, Leicester struggled this season with FFP. Um, you know, you could go on and name quite a few who have really struggled and have, and have followed the rules. So for now, all of a sudden, the Saudis are going to Chelsea. But they're basically, like you said, they're picking up their fringe players and they're spending 20, 30 million on them and they're wiping all the debts. I think it's completely unfair. Um, all the other teams that are playing by the rules don't have this option. It doesn't sit right with me at all. You've got teams there that are playing by the rules um, and, and in Leicester's case, have been relegated for it. Um, whereas Chelsea now are going to be able to go out and you know probably spend on another 10 players. 
Yeah, I mean, it is an absolute. I mean, you forget just how many players Chelsea have to get rid of. You know, we haven't even talked about you know Sterling, Lukaku. You know, they've got Nkunku coming in. You know, there's so much going on at Chelsea that you know Poch must be literally confused out of you know being at a club that that didn't make a transfer for what felt like twelve months for him. You know, to be at Chelsea where he's got to make fifty, he must be sort of struck, even having gone through the PSG experience. But you know, it just it just feels like that they've found a bit of a cheat code, a bit of a loop. Where actually there's not a lot that anybody can do about it, but ultimately, like you say, you know, Mendy, you know, was at one stage, you know, a top end Premier League keeper that people rated. Kulabali, when he came into Chelsea, was a big name, but you know, let's be honest, he's, he's definitely not had a great season. You know, Ziyech is, is underperformed, and they're going to pull in somewhere in the region of 100 million for those three players. If, if that was in the open market, that just would not happen. No, and it's not just that; it's the wages off the books as well, isn't it? Like it's going to free up so much wages. Some of the wages those people are on are, are eye watering. So, yeah, I just think it's completely unfair. Um, you've got teams, as I said, playing by the rules, and all of a sudden a Saudi club are coming in basically in one investing in, in a team, which I'm not against. That's absolutely fine for me. But it's then when you're able to basically own another club and go and buy all the deadwood, just doesn't sit right with me. And you talked about wages. That's, that's an interesting point. Obviously, they talk about Kante earning £100 million uh, pounds tax-free uh, for someone who, you know, has, let's be honest, didn't play much football last season at all. Don't get me wrong. You know, if you're picking a best 11 transfers sort of in, in the Premier League history, you know, Kante would, would have to be in the discussion at the price that Leicester paid for him and, and what he's done in the league and what he's done in the world football. But, you know, if you're talking about the last two years, he's been non-existent in reality and he's going to go in at £100 million. Now, when Liv, the, 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 the Saudi-backed golf tournament became a thing, you know, those golfers were run through, even now, obviously, with the, with the takeover that's been sort of merged back into the PGA, those golfers are still getting an absolute caning every time they're in front of a camera talking about how do you feel taking Saudi money? How do you feel taking Saudi money? You're being part of the sports what sports wash plan. And again, you know, I do this every week. You know, I like to, to, to throw out content out there. Documentary on Netflix, Full Swing, which follows... PGA during the season where Live Golf came in is absolutely fascinating, both in terms of the mindset of professional golfers and also what happened during that period. It feels to me like the football players are getting away to scot free. Yeah, it does. It does seem that way, doesn't it? I do think though, sooner or later, there will start being interviewed like the golfers were. I mean, Rory McIlroy, bless him, took an absolute hammering, didn't he? I don't know if you've seen that BBC interview. He's been taking an absolute battering, and then obviously when. Um, when Liv was accepted a couple of weeks ago, he was the first person they interviewed and again took another battering, standing up for his, his beliefs, which I, I, you know, fair play to him, I'm, I'm in agreement with him. But I just feel that when it's it's getting to this point, is it's almost like a join them all. It's happening, isn't it? It's, it's happening. You've got, um, you know, the PGA Tour tried to stand up to it, didn't they? But money money talks. So I do feel that we sort of do need to get on board of it, but I just think we need strict, stricture... Um, rules and regulations around it because I feel that the, the Chelsea thing as a side note is that's just unacceptable I'm, I'm okay with money coming into the game because it can only benefit you know the grassroots and, and stuff like that but not in the way that Chelsea are doing it well and look let, let, let's be completely clear and I've, I've definitely seen it one of, one of this week's trends on social media is fans of all clubs compiling a list of players that they think are toilet trying to sell them to the Saudis I saw, a, I saw a brilliant one from an Everton fan who compiled a list of their supposed strengths and values uh, that was that was actually very very good. Uh, so you know we'd, we'd all be taking it if it was for our club, I guess, right? But so we have to be careful of of not having double standards. But you're right; it does feel a little bit 
bit fishy. It does feel a little bit like there's something going on here. A bit like if I owned the company, I'd, I, I then sponsored the shirt of the team that I, that I own for you know four times the market value, which is something that's been thrown at Man City in the past. You know, we just need to be careful what what we're sort of arguing about here, really. Yeah, we do. But like you said, I mean, you, you speak to the Newcastle fans when they were being taken over. I think it was probably a bit of a split about all oh, being taken over by Saudi and the money and you know, what goes on in their country. To now, I don't think any of them care about it. Um, so I think that's probably where football is going to get to is money will obviously talk. And um, I would imagine that a lot of clubs will go down this route of being bought by states because they can. They've got the money to do it, haven't they? So I, I do feel that that's the way football's going and the majority of clubs will be owned by states. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to move away from the uh, from the fan owned concept that started with you know obviously you know, Wrexham were a great example of, of the fans that saved the club that left them in the position for Ryan Reynolds to come in and do what they've done with it. It was the fans that kept the club alive, and you know they, they quite often aren't getting any credit for the state that Wrexham are now in uh, because obviously all we talk about is Ryan Reynolds and the celebrity sort of attachment to the club. Uh, I think those days are long gone where fans are running football clubs, but it's a shame that. Uh, Maybe we're we're all part of a bigger PR machine that, that that's trying to distract us from what's really going on elsewhere. And you know, maybe if your team buys enough shiny new players, you you will forget about where the money's come from. Yeah, uh, what I think is interesting about the way football's gone over the years is you had Blackburn Rovers were the first to do it, weren't yep. they? With their with their owner, and uh, to to have success, that he needed millions of pounds. Then. Um, Roman Abramovich has come in and has changed the game and he needed hundreds of millions of pounds to change the game. And now we're at a point where states are buying and you need billions. So, And that's why I feel it's only going one way. The game has been changed by Sheikh Mansour. Um, obviously now the Saudis are coming into it. If you're just a standard, you know, 100 millionaire... <laughs> You haven't got the you haven't got the you haven't got the funds now to be able to run a club like when Abramovich came in and you know you haven't got the funds you need to have be the super super wealthy and we you know there's not that many of them around and there's only a few people who are like that and it's unfortunately it's in it's in Saudi Arabia and state owned and so that leads us on to the, the, the next topic which was was very expertly done around you know obviously Manchester United are currently going through what feels like a process that's been drawn out. Uh, way beyond the need to draw it out, and and it must be hampering Manchester United's ability to to move in the in the transfer market. We're about to talk, talk about some transfers that I think Manchester United would love to be involved in if they could. But you know, how much longer can, can the owners, the Glazers, actually drag this out? And and actually, is it putting Manchester United at a complete disadvantage? They're operating with one hand up behind their back because the Glazers aren't going to spend money until they know what the the offer is and what's going on. And obviously, the new owner can't spend any money until they're the new owner. It's exactly that. They're at a complete disadvantage until it's sorted out. Um, again, I think it's interesting though. It's Sir Jim Ratcliffe, isn't it? He hasn't got the money. He hasn't. Got, he can't compete with the Saudis. You know, he's having to go into a consortium to do it, hasn't he? So I just feel the Saudis will win that battle, um, and then as soon as they do, um, Manchester United will be in a far better place transfer-wise because, like you said, they'll be able to spend money on on anyone they want with the level of, of money that they'll have. Um, but yeah, they're not going to be able to go into the market. They say the Glazers aren't going to spend any money until until this is sorted out. Why would they go and spend £100 million on transfers? Because it, it might increase the value. Like, you know, for, for me, I think they're missing the point. Like you, you either need to get this done quickly and move on and move out. Like, you know, we, Again, very easy for me to say, right, it's not my £6 billion. I mean, firstly, I'm not even sure Manchester United, albeit you know, one of the largest sports franchises in the world alongside the Dallas Cowboys, uh, you know, whether they're worth six billion or not is not for me to decide. It's definitely not in my my pay grade. But come on, you know, get it done. You know, this has been it feels like it's been going on for four, five, six, seven months, if not longer. 
uh, behind the scenes. I, I certainly know someone that was involved in the in the, the initial rounds, and that feels like that was way before Christmas. And it can't be this difficult, you know. You, you, if I'm selling a house, it doesn't take this long, and I appreciate there's lots more that goes with it. But you must have a figure you want. The buyer must know that figure. Get it done so you can move the club forward. Because Manchester United are one, of, as I just said, one of the biggest brands in the world. If, if again, we'll come on to Declan Rice later. But if Declan Rice has got the choice of Arsenal or Man United. I still think Manchester United are a bigger pull as a club than, than you know 99% of the other teams across the world. Give them the money, players will go there and you're going to set yourself up to, to catch Man City potentially. I, I just feel that's what that's the problem at the minute with Manchester United and, and the Glazers is that they're obviously not bothered about, about the team in general. They are just there as owners to make money. Um, so, you know, if they are waiting an extra two weeks to try and squeeze out, whether it's another 100 million out of the Saudis or Jim Ratcliffe, whoever it is, that's going to, they're doing it for their best interest and not the club. And that's, you know, it's, it's a business at the end of the day and that's what they're going to do. I don't think they are there and they're that actually too bothered about Manchester United because they're always going to be worth billions of pounds, aren't they? They are Manchester United. So making them miss out on a few transfers is not going to interest them. Yeah. Which is a shame. Yeah. Like I, said, I, I think you just got to get this deal done. You've got to, you know, there's, there's so many quality players that are, you know, on the cusp of, of making a move, you know, they haven't even got Mason Mount over the line, which feels like, you know, he's want, he's, he's basically said, just please, months ago, they've said, we want you and we still can't get the deal done, you know, because no one knows who the owner's going to be, you know, if the, if the new owners could just let the old owners know, that, don't worry about it, so, you know, this is, this is what we'd be spending on transfers, you go and spend it and we'll give it to you, because Ten Hag, you know, they haven't got a goalkeeper at the moment, you know, David De Gea is mm. out of contract, albeit on a ridiculous contract that he was on, but he's out of contract. At the moment, Manchester United don't even... Well, I suppose uh, Henderson comes back from Notts Forest, who's on loan there, but he's uh, definitely not welcome at Man United based on how he left sort of last time round. So, you know, they've got a massive rebuild to do and they've got Champions League football, so they, they need more than they had last year. Yeah, and that's where they are as a club, aren't they? And like I said, it's not going to get done until, until the ownership is done. Um, I do just feel that with Man United... Like you said, they should just be pumping the money in now. Like that, as you said earlier, they pump the money in. It once you've got your squad that's there, it adds value to the sale, doesn't it? You can say we'll pump hundred million into it now and want that recouped in the sale. It's just sort of obvious, but I don't think, like I said, they're football people. They don't care about that. Oh, they definitely don't care about football. Yeah, for sure. It's, they've definitely done it from, from a business point of view. But like I said, Man United have got a really strong opportunity here. Champions League football back at Man United for the first time in a couple of years. You know that they've got to make the most of this because you know. And I've had this conversation with a few people. Is that if you st- if you pick your top four now, there's no guarantee that that Manchester United are in it next season. It's going to be very very close, very very interesting. You know, Liverpool. You know, if you look at last year's Champions League, three of the teams that qualified aren't in it this year. You know, Spurs, mm. Chelsea, Liverpool, who all qualified last year, aren't in it next year. I could I could that could easily happen again. That you have three. Obviously, I'm going to say that Man City are going to be champ. I don't think that's that's. I don't think that's going to break the internet if I think that Man City are going to finish in the top four. And so actually, you could I could easily see Chelsea, Liverpool getting back into the top four next season and therefore Man United are going to be one of those teams at risk if they keep dilly-dallying like they are. Like I, like I said, with the exception of Man City, the rest of it is up for grabs, isn't it? And you can you can chuck other teams in the mix there. Villa, Brighton, like <laughs> they're, they're going to improve. You know, Villa have signed some good players already. Um, you know, I'd imagine Brighton will also do the same. They've got a lot of money from some of the sales they'll be making. They'll do the same. So it's completely up for grabs. And it wouldn't surprise me that if Man United drop out, I don't think they are that good. They are sort of some best of the rest of the six or seven teams, aren't they? But losing a couple of players, like you've mentioned De Gea, 
there's a few others as well they could easily drop out so they do need to get get this done just on a side note on Mason Mount I still can't believe he's, he's that Man United want him I don't rate him in the slightest I, I think United fans will go off him straight away Mason Mount is the football equivalent of Marmite isn't he but you either think he's fantastic or you think he's he's just not a footballer uh, it's interesting actually I I, I think he's just a player that's been, uh, for whatever reason, maybe the wrong manager has been with him. But like what I see is a player that, that can perform at an elite level, but actually just lost confidence for whatever reason. And he just needs somebody to put his arm back around and make him feel important. And I think you've got a player that, that is he's definitely good enough as a Premier League football. Whether he's, whether he's the answer for England anymore moving forward, I'm not so sure. But certainly, you know, for Man United, has a bit of strength and depth. You know, you talk about Ericsson getting on. You know, Fernandes has to play week in, week out. You know, at some point, he's going to, you know, he's, he would have an injury at some point. You need to have players around him that can come in and do a similar sort of job. So I get it, but I, I think they're missing out on some other opportunities around there. People that would go to Manchester United if they're interested, but they can't because they're not. Like you mentioned Declan Rice. For me, that's the one that changes their midfield. It, Mason Mount's going for, what, £50 million, is it? Something like that. Yep. Just, just spend the money on Declan Rice. He's the same sort of age. He will. He would go there, I, I agree. Um Yes, you probably double in the transfer outlay, but he's a he's, he's two or three times the better player and would fit that midfield for me far better than what Mason Mount does. He's a similar player to Fernandez for me. They're both going to be playing in the same position. I'd pick Fernandez over him every day of the week. I tell you, what, you're doing a good job of these segues. So as we move on to transfers, because Declan Rice is right at the top of mind. Obviously, we've, we've spoke about him a couple of times. The, the thing that, that that you didn't touch on there is that Declan Rice and Mason Mount are best mates. They are, you know, almost brothers. In reality, they are absolutely tight and tight. And I think if you add anything about you as Manchester United, you get Mason Mount on board. If it gets you Declan Rice and those two continue that bond and they can play, not only is the upgrade to midfield because Declan Rice is, is generational, but actually it, it, it blocks that. It, it creates a solution to a problem there for the next eight, nine years because they're both young enough. They're both really good buddies. They're both, in my opinion, Manchester United type of players and it gets you Declan Rice so even if Mason Mount isn't quite as good as people think he might be, you've got Declan Rice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You say that's and that's the way you sort of transfers are done now, aren't they? Trying to every every with every transfer, you're trying to sweeten the deal, whether that whether that's a player in return, a loan in return, those sorts of things, buying the best mates, and that's what I play uh, clubs miss out on tricks like that quite often, don't they? Well, and and so you know, I, I said quite early that Declan Rice won't be going to Arsenal. I was quite bold with that. But actually, as every passing day goes, it seems like he's edging slightly, slightly closer to Arsenal because nobody else has yet come through. However, the latest kind of r- rumour gossip is that if Gundogan leaves Man City, they're going to go hard for Declan Rice. So Arsenal need to get this deal done quickly if they're going to get him over the line. For me, that needs to be priority because, again, similarly, if he went to Manchester United, he solves the problem. For Arsenal to do what they did last year, it looks like Thomas Partey's on his way out, whether that be there's a rumour swirling around around. Uh, obviously Saudi there's also another rumour swirling around that he might be in a spot of trouble so obviously I think Arsenal are quite keen to move him on before that happens uh, Declan Rice I think makes Arsenal actually potentially title challengers next season yeah I agree um, I, I could always see him going to Arsenal just because London club he doesn't have to uproot his family uh, you know Arsenal are on the up got some young talented players a lot of them play for England with him so I could have definitely seen him going there one problem I've got with Arsenal, though, is that going back to this Luis Suarez bid all those years ago when they bid, was it £25 million in a pound? It's 40, isn't it? £40 million yeah. in one pound. Yeah. If you want him, just pay the asking price. 
if, if you if you think he's going to be the man to improve your midfield, like you've got outgoings as well. You mentioned Thomas Partey. You're going to recoup some of that money with outgoings as well. So for me, pay the money. If you were going to improve and you're going to, this is the way you build your team around somebody like a Declan Rice and the club is going to move forward with these elite players, just pay the money. And I think until they do that, Man City are in pole position here because they've got Calvin Phillips who they can offer in return to West Ham, who I think would be um, a great replacement for for uh, Declan Rice in midfield. So I've had this row with a few different uh, fans of different clubs this week because everyone's getting emotionally attached to transfers that haven't happened and you know, just pay the money, just pay the money. And, and I've actually argued against that in many of the cases, uh, but on this one, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually agree with you because Declan Rice isn't an unknown, you know, Paraguayan 18 year old. You know, he's not a, a French player that's never played. He is uh, arguably, you know, alongside Jude Bellingham, uh, the two best English midfield players of the next 15 years. He solves the problem for you in terms of he's a great leader. He's done it in an underperforming team where he's stood out in, in the West Ham team. And he is absolutely one of the best midfield players in the Premier League already. And in that Arsenal team, he'll only be better. And for me, I agree with you on this one. Arsenal just need to go, what do you want? Because you don't need to worry about that. You know, Again, give him a six-year, seven-year contract. No problem at all because you know he's going to be... Unless he gets an injury, he is going to be their main man for the next six, seven years. You've then got an absolute nucleus of young players. Odegaard's young, Saka's young, Martinelli's young. You don't need to do it again. You know... Sign one Declan Rice, you don't. It means you don't have to sign two Thomas Parties. Like you're done forever. Yeah, that's exactly where I am with it. He, if you've identified him as the main man to come into midfield, like I said, I know they're asking a lot of money, but like I said, he's a proven Premier League player. You know, he's a proven international footballer of the highest quality. Just pay the money. It's not like you said you're going in for somebody who could flop. He won't flop. Everyone knows he won't. He's not. He's not a winger. You know who. You know, his flair is a bit hit and miss. He's just a very solid player, isn't he? Keeps the ball, reads the game very well. You're not going to just move to another club and lose that. You know exactly what you're investing in. Just pay the money, get him over the line. Because if you don't, Man City will. And then you're going to be on the back foot again in the season. And I think, you know, Man City are a really interesting piece of work right now because there's lots of rumours coming out around players, you know, potentially on the way out in terms of... There was talk this week of Kyle Walker going to Bayern Munich, which I never bought. Turns out that's not looking like the case now. You've got Gundogan who hasn't signed the renewal yet and obviously loads of clubs are going to be looking at Gundogan because of obviously all of the great stuff that he can do. Bernardo Silva's being linked back now to PSG with obviously uh, their new sporting director, uh, Campos, who obviously they worked at Monaco together. So obviously there's a link there. And by the way, PSG are doing some great bits of business. If you want to look at how it's done properly, go and see, even if you've got money, go and look what they've done this window. They're doing a great job of, of, of signing up young, good, hungry players at good fees. Uh, Obviously, Cancelo's available as well. You know, you're talking about four key, in my eyes at least, four key players to that Man City squad that are, that are available. And they've just gone out and signed Kovacic from Chelsea for 25-plus add-ons. Does that feel like a, like a good addition based on what they might be losing? Or does that feel like they're definitely going to need to go out and, and get some more? I think the Kovacic one is a, is a good deal, but it's a bit strange, isn't it? Like I said, he's, um, what is, he? Is, he, is he 30? I think he's 30, isn't he? He's up there. He's, he's, not, he's, he's yeah. getting on. Yeah, he's not young, but he is a good player. He keeps the ball well, breaks the lines, and probably at the price they paid for him is a bit of a snip. Um, but yeah, I mean, a few of the, the ones you mentioned who they're losing, they're good players. The Gundogan one for me, I can't wrap my head around. Unless he's adamant that he's off, I can't understand why you want to lose him. He's the captain, he's their leader. He's the metronome in midfield who links the play. It's a, it's a very strange one. Yeah, so, so Kovacic is 29. And interesting, if you look at the stats of Chelsea, actually, he's been... Uh, if we talk about fantasy, as an example, Kovacic has actually been let down by Chelsea's inability to put the ball in the back of the net. 
He's actually been very good at making that pass that creates a chance. They've just been poor at converting it. So actually, I think that what you'll find from Kovacic is actually he creates a lot of goals for Haaland next season because actually he's great at breaking the press, great at those through balls. He just hasn't had the right players at Chelsea around him for him to have the stats. Because if Kovacic had scored you know, seven goals last season and had 15 assists, we'd all be going, my God, what an amazing signing. But again, using that kind of money ball system around stats and predicted goals off the back of his passes, he's just been let down by the person on the end of the pass. Yeah, I rate him. He's industrious as well, isn't he? He works hard. Um, you know, he gets a lot of tackles in, does the dirty work. You see him bombing up and down the pitch. I do rate him. I think he, he's a good addition. The, the other one that obviously is, is being rumoured to leave is, is Laporta, uh, who you know potentially go back to Spain with, with Gavardio coming in. Uh, you know, that would be a, obviously an, another mega money move, 100 odd million coming in. Uh, another centre back that's been sort of, I guess, touted around Europe for what feels like forever. Uh, but again, they're just not resting, are they? They're, they're looking to grow. They're looking to keep moving forward. And the only came out with some, some ominous statements this week. Uh, but, but Man City are looking to make their moves. And again, when Man City make the decision, like we spoke about, they just go and get the deal done, don't they? It's very rare you hear a Man City deal where it's been rejected because it's not been bid enough. It's almost like they do their pre-work to find out what the asking price is and they go and pay it if they're happy with the asking price. And if they're not happy, they don't bid. Yeah, they, they, they definitely look like they're going to be a very interesting one to keep an eye on. And again, you know, there's got to be, you know, Cancelo felt like for me that certainly 24 of the last 28 months, he was being talked about as being one of the best right-back, left-backs in the world, can play both sides, can cut in, scores goals, assists, and now nobody seems to want him. I don't know how he's had this massive fall from grace, because for me, it felt like not that long ago, he was on everybody's lips as one of the players of the season. That's one of the strangest drop-offs, isn't it? Is literally got from going from probably everyone speaking about him being the best fullback in the world to now um, whether it's wages based because he's on too much I don't know but Bayern didn't want him back is it his personality like we can only speculate can we but yeah it's a real strange one because he is he is absolutely class isn't he but where does he fit in at some of the top teams in the Premier League I'm thinking there's a lot of good fullbacks around at the minute well I, I would be saying if I was the, the, the chairman at Arsenal. You know, he's a serious right-back upgrade from Tommy Asu, as an example. I understand Ben White's done a good job in there, but again, that's that's round pegs, square holes, or square pegs, mm. round holes. You know, like he he was supposed to be a centre back, and they need centre back cover. You know, they haven't got you know they've got, they've got two amazing centre backs, but they haven't got the strength and depth that they would like. Obviously, Saliba signed a new contract, so, so they're happy there. But but ultimately, they're short. So to have him come in. You know, to, to do the same sort of job as, as obviously they've got the, the Man City reject, not reject, but say Man City opportunity on the left. You know, for me, that feels like a bit of a no-brainer, but maybe at 60 million, it's too much to ask. I was about to say, I think it points to the finances involved, doesn't it? Because if you're looking at, um, you know, if they're going to push out to 100, 120 million for Declan Rice, the rumours that are going around is that they they bid for the Leicester fullback Castagna of 15 million pounds. Now, he's not a patch on um, Cancelo, is he? <laughs> he's absolutely nowhere near the level. Um, and I agree, Cancelo, you put him in at right back for Arsenal, it'll be an amazing signing, but I think it just points to they might not have the funds available to do it, which is why they're going down the other route of Gavin Castagna as a, as a backup. And, 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 and this is the other interesting point, it's like, you know, everyone has a budget and, and actually would you be better off, for example, if you're, if you're Arsenal and let's say, for example, those two transfers are going to cost you £125 million across Rice and Castagna, would you be better off going and getting Lavia and Cancelo to strengthen two positions, rather because for me, Castagna is nowhere near the level that Arsenal should be looking at. And so actually, would you be better using that in a different way? I understand that, as I've just said, Declan Rice is generational, in my opinion, and he's, he's going to transform the club. But, you know, actually, maybe Lavia, who's even younger than Declan Rice, could do a similar job with Cancelo coming in as well. Maybe that would be a better way. But again, I'm not a, I'm not a talent ID, but, but that might be something for them to think about. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How you know you've got a set budget and you spread. How do you spread your funds? Say, so I think Lavia is going to be a quality player, but if you're looking for the here and now, I don't think he's the he's the answer, is he? So for me, Declan Rice is the man that's going to improve him the most. But yeah, like would it be better off spreading that money across two or three players? And obviously, another player that Arsenal will be heavily, heavily linked with, and apparently it's moving forward today is is Kai Havertz. Are you having that as a, as a concept? Is that a good idea for you? Not for me. Not for me. I think it's a real strange signing. Uh, you know, I think he's a good player, but I, don't, I can't see how he fits in at Arsenal. Um, for me, he's going to be a backup. I've seen a few Arsenal fans putting their lineups out and putting him in midfield. He's not a midfielder for me. He's a he's a number nine, number ten sort of player, and to me, Jesus is a better player. So I get that they need backup, but for that fee, like I said, I'd, I'd sooner than be spending that fee on Cancelo at right back and improving their eleven. See, interestingly, I, I think that he's been let down by playing in the nine at Chelsea. I think actually, if you go back to how he played in Germany, he wasn't the nine. He was off the nine. He was again shapes and systems, and again the four-two-three-one. He becomes the the middle of the three behind the centre forward, and actually, therefore, then the pressure is off because he's he's not a uh, prolific goal scorer, but he is a goal scorer of big, important goals. For me, I think sixty-eight million feels probably a little bit too much, but actually, again, if you, if very similar to Kovacic. I think both of those players will get better stats, you know, in terms of goals and assists coming out of that Chelsea team where no one was scoring. Going into an Arsenal team, all of a sudden you'll see Havertz dropping because he's got Saka out wide, right? He's got Martinelli coming, he's got Jesus. You'll see that next season, if he goes to Arsenal, he'll probably end up with, you know, 13, 14 assists and seven or eight goals. And everyone will be going, what a great signing, just because he's got better finishes around him. Yeah, I, I think he's a good player. I just can't see, like I said, for value for money and for some of the other positions that they need. I'm Kansak being Kansak the main point. I I think they'd be better off spending that money there. I just think he's a he's a decent player, but not that money for me. And th- there is a bit of a midfield merry-go-round at the moment. Obviously, Declan Rice is is obviously high on the list. Lavia, who we've spoken about, and obviously the third one in that that mix is obviously Quesado from Brighton. Looks like uh, he's now sort of wrapped up and going to Chelsea. You know, big bucks again, uh, some big numbers. Obviously, they're going to make their money back on the the Kovacic and the Mount outs, as well as obviously all the other ones we spoke about going to Saudi. But you know, all of a sudden that that Chelsea midfield looks, you know, with with Fernandez obviously coming in at, at, at January and Casado, that that's going to be a, a tough team to to play around moving forward. Is it? That, that Chelsea team starting to take shape? Yeah, uh, I mean, value for money, again, I'm not sure Casado's worth that amount of money, but I really do like him. I think he's a top player and he would definitely improve him. What I do feel about players going from like, mid-table clubs like your, your Brightons, your Leicesters, your West Hams, um, it's not very often that you've seen them uh, players join and then really flourish. I think it takes them a while to get used to a top club of how they do things. So I think he will have a very solid season, but I don't think he'll be a standout to begin with, but I do think he's a really good player. And, and yeah, absolutely, but a part of that is because Brighton have played a very, very specific system that suits the players they've got and have made it work. You know, Chelsea are going to play a different system, so actually, Casado might need to type, take some time to adapt to the system. Let alone the big club, you know, the transfer fee, the money, the the extra razzmatazz that goes along with being a Chelsea player rather than a Brighton player. But actually, quite often, it's just the the shape and the system that's different that makes it awkward for the players to sort of fit in. Yeah, and I, I agree, but I think it is also that expectation. So I'm trying to think of big money transfers, and you know we already spoke about Harry Maguire, haven't we? But when Harry Maguire went from Leicester to Man United, he struggled a lot just because of the expectation. The expectation, I think, um, Paul Merson summed it up for that transfer in particular: is you play for Leicester, you sit in on the edge of your box; you play for Man United, you're on the halfway line. 
So it's just different styles of play, like you mentioned with Brighton. So I do think it will just take take players who move from mid-table clubs because of the style of play and and the expectation. I do feel it takes them a little a uh, longer while to uh, to settle in. Which we spoke about Havertz. I don't think you'll have that problem with Havertz because of him being originally at Chelsea, going to Arsenal. He will already have experienced that. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm just going to leave this out there. Obviously, there's a long way to go. Uh, and I know that there's lots of evidence to think that I'm going to be wrong on this statement, but I've got a feeling that this transfer window is going to be one that sees Brighton just fall off next season and not quite be the same team that they were this year. I think they've done so well with replacing the Basumas and the Kukureyas and the Malpays and all those other great players that they lost over time for great fees. I just feel like this window, it feels to me like, you know, I'm sure James Milner is a very, very good professional but I don't think that he's an answer to any of their problems, you know, other than maybe that they're bringing him in as a coach, as a leadership team. I think this could be the window that finally breaks that that success pattern for Brighton. And I think they could be in for a slightly tougher ride next season, unless they do something really exciting with the rest of the window, of course. I, I agree entirely. Um, you look at teams that regularly sell players and the first team that comes to mind for me is Southampton. Yep. When, you, when you're continuously selling your players, um, it's very hard to replace them with, with players of the same level. And eventually you get found out. Now, Brighton could be the exception here because they do look ahead of the curve in the recruitment um, process where they are able to find these players. They keep churning them out, don't they? Now, for, for me, it'd be amazing if they do. And I really hope, do hope that they find some new players and they keep churning them out because they're the teams, they're the, the individual team that are going up against the big boys with this new model. And I love to see it. So I really do hope that they do find these players. But I agree. I think it's going to be very hard. You know, They're going to receive a lot of money for... Um, McAllister and Caicedo and they have uh, Cucurello as well but it's very very rare that you keep spending minimal amounts and finding top top talent well what's also happened is that teams are are, are, now Brighton have been sort of universally sort of accredited for this amazing football great setup. they always find we've done it on here but at least 10 times and we told you everybody how great Brentford and Brightford Brentford and Brightford Brentford and Brighton are the teams that you're now buying from are now aware of that. So they're going, oh, you think our player's a good player? There's 10 million on the price. And and Chelsea have done it back to Brighton. They've said, you want Colville? No problem at all. 40 million quid. Now, you know, Colville 18 months ago, if they'd have done that, would have been five or six million quid. Everybody raving about what they've done. But, but people have caught on to what Brighton are doing and they're not going to let them keep buying their players for cheap when every time you knock on their door, the price is as high as it is. Yeah, I suppose it swings around about with, with the deals that they're doing, though. So if they are taking a player from Chelsea, if they're charging £10 million more for Cole, we'll charge £10 million more for Caicedo. It sort of evens itself out, doesn't it? But, but, but that's, that's the point, is the teams are not going to give Brighton that discount code, if you like, that they used to do. Oh, little old Brighton, cute little old Brighton. You know, they're now going to have to start playing the same fees as if a West Ham or Man United, whoever it is, come in. Because teams are not going to let them keep getting all the credit for these amazing sort of signings. They are. The only exception that you've got with Brighton is that it's very rare that Brighton do go to Premier League clubs and buy the players, isn't it? I know we've mentioned Colville as the um, Colville as the exception there, but generally they are going to sort of Paraguay and Chile and, and places for their players, aren't they? Argentina for McAllister and etc. So they'll, they'll be adding a few more million on, hundred percent there, but it's not the same as if you're going to a Premier League team and adding ten or fifteen million pounds on. No, but again, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they they bend the gate through this window because, like you said, they're, they're they're losing or have lost two of their their big hitters in that midfield, and like I said, they've signed Dahoud from from Dortmund on a free, they've signed Milner from Liverpool on a free. For me, that's a massive, massive downgrade. Happy to be proven wrong. Maybe they've got a plan. Maybe they've got a different system that's coming in place. But I do like Dahoud. I do like him. I think he's a good player. He's a very, but he's a very different type of player to the two that they've sold. So their style is going to have to evolve. 
yeah, it's just, again, you know, just to be, you know, I spoke to somebody the other day who's quite high up at a football club and he was talking about how you know, anybody that makes it as a professional, even if we're talking about Leighton Orient, as an example, is in the top 1% of footballers around the world. So when we talk about someone maybe not quite being right, we, we, they are obviously still elite level athletes with, with phenomenal skill. I just think that they feel, that feels, I can't think of a much bigger downgrade across, you know, two outs and two ins of any other Premier League team so far this season. Yeah, I mean, I get the James Milner signing, it's experience, it's probably exactly what they need in the, in the team. But if it's a direct replacement for McAllister or um, Caicedo, I don't get it at all. So I, do feel, I don't feel he will be the replacement. I feel he's a squad filler. Um, experience is probably exactly what they need. And quite possibly going to go on to their coaching staff, do his badges, that kind of stuff. They've mm. done a similar thing with Adam Lallana, haven't they? And, and anyone at Brighton sort of tells me that uh, actually he's as important behind the scenes as he is on the pitch because obviously he's not playing every week anymore based on age and injuries, etc. So actually what he does behind the scenes is really important for the club. And they've just got themselves another great leader for them young players that hopefully, I would love for Brighton to actually not go and replace them with signings, actually go and replace them from people from their academy. That would be an amazing thing for us to start to see more teams using their academy as they move forward. Yeah, and that's the way the way it should be. If you've got a, an academy that's producing talent it's, and it's going to save you as a club 50, 60 million pounds in Brighton's case, if you're going to try and replace those players, that's probably the outlay of what they're going to be looking at. And if you've got a couple of youngsters coming through who can save you that fee you know, and add that quality, that's amazing. Absolutely. So we're going to keep abreast of the transfer window and what impact that may or may not have. And again, if you're a, an expert in a club of the, one of the Premier League clubs and you want to come on and have your say, give us a breakdown of what you think your club needs or, or, or might be doing, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We're more than happy to get you on and have a chat, a deep dive into into each club over the window to see where we end up. And obviously, you know, we, we called the, the podcast The Atmosphere is Electric because we spoke about obviously sort of punditry and, and fans. And so for the last part, obviously it would only be right if we talk about... Uh, I'm going to say this, and I, I'm not. I'm not scared or embarrassed. I'm going to say the great Martin Tyler, uh, the voice of my generation, someone that I've, I feel like I've grown up listening to with, steps down from Sky Sports, and obviously being replaced by by everybody's favourite in Peter Drury. Uh, obviously made some real big news this week, Fran. Obviously a massive shock. Didn't see it coming. Both Martin Tyler leaving and Peter Drury coming across the sky. How do you feel about that? What do you think that impact is going to have on the Premier League next season? I had, I had a couple of feelings about it. First of all, I thought it was quite sad about Martin Tyler leaving because I do feel he has been iconic and you know the voice of the Premier League for years. However, I do feel it's the right time. I think Peter Jury is the best commentator out there at the minute. I think what he what he has been doing previously, you know, he's sort of romanticising football, hasn't he? Um, some of the the phrases and lines that he's been coming out with. So I do feel it is an upgrade, and I feel it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, I did feel sad because Martin Tyler has provided some superb commentary over the years and you know thinking of the Aguero moment things like that he's he's been iconic I, I had uh, agreed yeah I, you know I actually you know and I'm, I'm going to show my age a little bit but for me Martin Tyler uh, going right about back to when we had uh, Andy Gray alongside him you know I appreciate that Andy Graham, Richard Keys left Sky Sports under a cloud, but you know that that's a real sort of generational time for me where I was growing up, and you know the Sky Sports was just making football this great thing, and those two voices were synonymous with with just Premier League. You know, just when them two were on commentary, you felt comfortable, you felt easy. Uh, but but for me, I just hope that Martin Tyler retired or left Sky because he he wanted to. There's something in me, and I don't, I've, I've, I have no. 
But I just wonder if those Martin Keown comments from a couple of months ago might have helped or pushed him down this way where he thought, why do I have to keep doing this? If people are going to come out with that kind of drivel and nonsense and keep, you know, every time I open my mouth, attack me, maybe I just don't want this. I'm, I'm old enough now. I don't want this in my life anymore. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, he, um, I think a lot of people started to moan about him, didn't they, in the sense of, that he wasn't getting as excited as he was with goals, and whether that's because he's been, you know, his longevity or not. But I do feel it probably was the right time. And I, like you, I do hope it wasn't around comments around people like Martin Kieran, um, you know, and loyalty and allegiances, wasn't it, in football for him? That's where they were trying to get to. So I hope it isn't that. Um, I hope it is this that he has gone out on his own terms. Interestingly, Martin Keown's gone very quiet recently. I've heard anything about him for a while, so maybe he's maybe he's done himself a bit of a disservice there. And people, you know, I, I think there's there's something very much about you know not turning into your own industry. And I think you know, again, football is an emotional sport. Obviously, Arsenal did lose the day before, but I just thought, as we said at the time, I don't want to keep going over it, but, but you know, it's a really poor piece of punditry. And maybe people have gone, yeah, that was too far actually, because you know, Martin Tyler, you know, commentators. It doesn't matter who you are, if your team loses you think the commentator is against you it doesn't matter who you are and what the commentator is every time I turn on the TV if you watch a football match and then go on social media someone's going to be slagging off the commentator oh I mean I, I watched the, all of the Ashes first tests and everyone was slating things about like what Kevin Peterson said and stuff and, and it is just again it's around allegiances and you know Peterson's getting a lot of trash back about his commentary because of what he said around the counties just got nothing to do with the commentary that he provided in the game so it is a strange thing everyone's going to criticize commentators based on things that they've said or done and stuff when actually just focus on them as a commentator tell you what you you do a great job as a scriptwriter because the final piece today is around the atmosphere and and you wanted to raise uh, something that's a little bit left field for us on on the pod based on the fact that generally speaking it's a football pod but you wanted to touch on the the atmosphere at the first ashes test this week yeah, I just thought it was interesting um, when you try and compare it to a football stadium. I thought the atmosphere in uh, at Headingley for the first test was amazing. I thought the um, the Barmy Army there created a a, a real um, loud, lively atmosphere, and you could see that the players thrived off it. And I just thought, in, in a contrast to a football atmosphere, I just thought it was slightly different. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is that cricket is a sport that I've watched for years and years. Uh, love cricket. I, I thought it was as close to a football experience in those last couple of hours yesterday where obviously cricket, you know, I played over five days. Generally speaking, you kind of know who's going to win or whether it's going to be a draw quite early on. You know, sometimes it can drag. This was a, was a moment where that last two hours yesterday was... Was felt like a football match, and everything, every every ball felt like it was almost a, a wicket or a or a four or a six, and obviously that got them close to the run. I thought it, you know the fans did, played their part. I thought you know staying with it with the rain, you know in the morning. I, I thought that you know again you're quite right. It was a phenomenal atmosphere and a phenomenal game of cricket, and one that will live long in the memory. Yeah, and I think when you try and tie that back into football, there is obviously differences there, isn't it? Like you say, people go to the cricket fancy dress, it's a full day out, whereas football is sort of 90 minutes. So there is differences there. But I do feel that, you know, probably the two could learn from each other a bit. You know, I think I do think at the cricket, you do get more of a, a full um, stadium atmosphere, whereas at the football, um, you do sort of only get one side of the ground singing, isn't it? You get singing sections and stuff, don't you? It's very rare that the full stadium sing, whereas at the cricket, they do. It would be great, wouldn't it, if actually football fans stopped that kind of need to have a punch up with each other and actually just got on a bit more and realised that it's, you know, I realise football is more important than life and death, as someone famously said, but ultimately it's a game. And actually, if you go, you know, like I say, fancy dress, non fancy dress, have a couple of beers, sing some songs until you, you can't sing no more, go home, win, lose, or draw. 
uh, actually that's what the game's about, you know, and actually you'd probably be able to have more beer in the stadium if it didn't lead to where it often leads to with football fans. Yeah, I think so. And, and that was the main reason why um, beer was banned from football stadiums, wasn't it? Obviously for the fighting. So, yeah, I think um, football can definitely learn from, from the cricket atmosphere and the fans there. So we've covered uh, a whole whole range of, of topics today, Fran. As always, uh, certainly my favourite hour of the week. If nobody else on the planet's favourite hour of the week, definitely mine. Uh, as always, Fran, people can reach out to us where and how? Uh, so we are on Twitter. If you just look for the Twitter profile, The Atmosphere is Electric, you can send us a direct message. You can reply to any of our tweets. Uh, and we're also on Spotify and you can send us a voice note on there. 